Well, hey, whether you, I know some of you in person, but also online, I can think you can tell that things are a little different in here. We have lights, and uh, excited about that. They told me that these would make me taller, skinnier, and have muscles. So y'all vote a little bit later on and let me know um, if that worked. But speaking of voting, if you're a member here at Crosspoint, you have an opportunity to vote online or if you're here in person um, for the things that we're voting on as far as budget and elders and all those things. Those are out there in the foyer. A little link will pop up. And you can do that as well. So, And uh, we're, we're glad whether you're here in person or online, we consider you family. And uh, this is a season of family. And I know people um, have good and bad experiences with their own family. And so we want to be that extended thing. And uh, we understand that uh, sometimes you want best family are the ones you get to pick, right? And uh, we get it. We understand. And, and uh, we love our family. But sometimes it doesn't go like we want. And so here at Crosspoint, we talk about being family. And that means sometimes we just... Have fun together. And uh, that's what we're going to do this morning. So I want to say thank you to Jonathan and his team of guys over the last three days that have put a lot of time and energy in. And uh, they invited me in, and I was the guy that supervised, and they said to get out of the way when they were doing something important so we know things will work. But this is a season where kind of life gets kind of cray-cray, right? It's a little crazy and all of that. And I was thinking about it. I was watching one of my friends post, and um their, their life is crazy. They got kids and grandkids and all that. And, you know, kids are coming and going and grandkids are coming and going. And one of the things that made me laugh is that every day they're posting how the manger scene changes at their house, depending on who comes there, because everybody has a different interpretation of how the manger scene should be set up. And so she's been posting those pictures and we've been laughing about the different ways that they do it. And just thinking about how would you put your manger scene together. You know, do the shepherds have to be in a certain spot or the camels and the horses and all that kind of stuff? And um, I think about a manger scene. Many times we think about something like this that shows up. You kind of got this little thing. You've put it perfectly together and you kind of got it all stuff. And sometimes you have a manger scene that you've been passed down. It means something of great worth and value to you. Some of you, you don't have a manger scene, and so you, but you've seen others. So when you hear manger scene, what do you think of? Many times, this is what we think about, and, but this is not reality. Reality is probably more than a little house like that kind of a thing. It's probably more like a cave, that they were, Jesus was there with, in the manger, and there were animals. And you know what? This probably smells pretty good. The real manger scene was probably pretty stinky. Also, we understand that King Herod issued an edict that any male child, Jewish child, under the age of two that they would take their life. And so that also tells us from history and from the reading that Jesus probably was not a baby, but was more like a toddler. Have you ever seen a toddler? They're kind of moving around and and doing all kinds of stuff and making their own stinkies, right? And so they're making their own mess. And here these wise men, these magi come, and they bow down and they worship toddler baby Jesus. This morning I want us to grasp what does it mean for us to worship this Jesus? What is our response to this baby Jesus? The Magi, whenever they approached him, they bowed down in worship and they opened up their treasure chests and they gave him expensive, valuable gifts, which we also know in hindsight symbolize some of the roles that Jesus would play. The gold that he was given, he was given because he's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The frankincense that he was given is symbolic of the fact that he's our high priest, which we talked about last week. And this morning, we're going to think about the gift that he was given, myrrh. 
which is a unique gum-like substance. It was expensive, and the use of myrrh was an antiseptic or an anesthetic. And um, whenever even Jesus was on the cross, what did they give him before? Whenever he was on the cross to numb his pain, they offered him myrrh mixed with wine. Why? Because they wanted to numb the pain. And Jesus refused that wine mixed with myrrh but to experience the fullness and to not be numbed pain on the cross. Gifts that we get can be extremely unusual. What are some of the, this is a moment for you to talk to me. What is the most unusual gift you've ever gotten? Don't be shy. Anybody? Somebody got soap last hour. That's probably speaking that your friends needed something. Yes. A hockey shirt. Okay. All right. I know someone that got a friend's ash, cat's ashes. It's unique. Somebody gave you an old beard. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh. That explains a lot about, about our friend. There's unusual gifts. I mean, how many of you have gotten fruitcake recently? I mean, yeah, we still give that. It's not as common as it used to be. I remember Becky and I got one, and I think we still moved it. We're still moving it. We figure someday it's got to be edible. I don't know, but uh, fruitcake. But you can imagine the unique gifts that we get, and here Jesus gets these unique gifts as well, but they're valuable because of the symbol with which they had for the story of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, it says, When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. This is the Magi. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. One of the interesting things about Jesus received gifts, but as we know from John 3.16 that Jesus not only received gifts, but John 3.16, we know that he is the greatest gift. What is the greatest gift that he is? One of the things that he is, as we find from this myrrh, is he's, Jesus is our Lamb of God. And he's also our um, great shepherd. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, it says, All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own. Here we see in Isaiah, over 700 years before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, Isaiah, to the T, gave a prophecy of what would happen to Jesus around his death. It's like this, that I could tell you in just a few months, what the World Series is going to end like. I can tell you who's going to win it, in what game, in what inning, what the score is going to be, who's going to be the one that throws the pitch, who's going to be the one that hits the ball, who's going to be the one to score. And I give you the exact details, and you write it down, and everything matches. That's exactly what Isaiah did in the book of Isaiah. He prophesied down to the detail the things that God gave him, and we saw take place in the story of Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. He is our great lamb, the suffering servant, and our great shepherd. He describes for us why Jesus needed to go to the cross, and it's because we are like sheep. Now, if you know anything about sheep, sheep are not trainable. They're not smart people. Even some of you are like, that's not a good thing. Whenever we're called like sheep, that is not a compliment. Why? Because sheep are defenseless, they're dumb, and they're drifters. What does it mean by the fact that they're defenseless? It means literally they will fall prey to predators. They're easy targets. They'll easily be taken out by wolves or coyotes. 
They have injuries. They're susceptible to injuries easily because their feet aren't made for some of the places that they have to walk. And so if their shepherd's not watching out for them, they can get hurt by the places that they walk. Sheep are dumb. How many of you have seen a sheep do tricks? You don't, right? I mean, you see dogs. You even sometimes see cats. I mean, you can see all kinds of animals, but sheep, just sheep. That's what they do. Sheep are also drifters. They kind of, they're hang together in community, but it's easy for them to get distracted and move. And so they will drift away from the path because they're easily stressed out. They're, they're easily moved about and they can get their social order, get what gets out of whack really easy. Sometimes they're just following the grass and they go one blade to the next blade and keep their head down and don't really pay attention to what's going around them. Well, how are we like sheep? Well, we're defenseless. Many times we fall prey to the easiest things that the world throws at us. We're unable to resist the temptations that are there before us. We see them time and time again, and for some reason we fall prey to them over and over and over again, and we don't realize that there's a predator running around, prowling, looking after us, and wanting to devour us. That the best thing that our predator can do can hurt us and injure us, and some others can go around and say, see, they're just like everyone else. One of the best places for us to be defend against the defenseless is for us to be in community together and be able to do life together in that community. We're also, sometimes we're just not very smart. We're led astray easily by things that are fleeting, sex, power, money, all the different things that the world has to offer appeals to us for a moment. It, it glistens. The apple looks appealing in that moment. And we think we can be like God or whatever it is. And so we pursue those things and we get off path easily. We also drift. We just chase things. We're just constantly chasing. We're looking after status. We're looking after approval. And so we're constantly drifting off the path that God has for us. Here's the beautiful thing is that Jesus is our Lamb of God, and so he is the ultimate sacrifice that whenever his blood was shed, as we talked about last week, his blood was put on the mercy seat. Therefore, we are declared righteous by his works. But also he is the great shepherd that the great shepherd is always attentive to his sheep. And he tries and strives to keep us in community. That whenever we need to go down a path, he has walked that path that we need to go because he knows that we're defenseless. He knows that we're not very smart. He knows that we need to drift. And his desire for his sheep is to be in a place where we can rest, that our souls can rest. And that the only way that our souls can truly rest is if we find the pasture ground that the great shepherd has for us. And so there may be a path that we need to go, and he's walked that path, and as a great shepherd is attended to, and he knows the places of danger, he knows the places that we're most ready to be deceived and our, our weak points, a great shepherd has his rod and he'll throw it. And in that moment when our eyes are distracted on something that may literally cause us harm and death, that rod is hit and it hits us and it's called discipline. And it hurts sometimes, but it redirects our attention. It redirects even our affections to the path that the great shepherd has for us. The great shepherd also not only uses his rod for discipline, but also there's those moments at the darkness of night. Whenever we come home into the sheep pen at the end of the day, that there are little pieces along the way where life just beats us up. And so the great shepherd doesn't just go to the pen and just lay down and let the sheep come in. He watches every single one of his sheep comes in. He counts them, and he stands in the gap, and he lets each one in. And the crook of his 
staff, he stops each one, and he slowly pulls back the wool and looks for injuries, looks for places where there might be disease, looks for places where there might be pests. And because the great shepherd knows that what we do in our own humanity is when someone says, how are you doing? The thing that we naturally say is, I am fine. I am good. Everything is good. And so as we come in in the darkness of night, he stops and says, how are you doing? And he doesn't just take us at our word. He literally pulls back the things that we use to mask our pain, to mask our hurt, to mask the ways that we've been attacked. And he pulls it back and looks at it. And when he finds those places where life beats us up that we don't want anyone to know, he anoints us with oil so that healing can begin to take place. So that in the night we can rest. So that the next day on our journey along the way to the place of rest, the the perfect pasture along the way, so that when we get to the perfect pasture that he has for us, we can sit down and literally rest in his presence because our bellies are full and we've been thirsty no more and we can truly allow our souls to rest because we know that the good shepherd has protected us and he's provided everything for us and has nothing to do with our works, but it's our perfect shepherd has walked to the place and gotten us to the place of rest. So not only is he our great shepherd, but he's also our lamb of God. Look at Isaiah chapter 53, verses 6 and following. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought when, and when we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for our own sins, for his own sins. But, He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Why do we follow Jesus? Because we have a lamb that was slain, a suffering servant that gave his life, but he's also our great shepherd. Think of it this way. At the Garden of Gethsemane, he knew what was about to happen. And he's still in that moment when he cried out in that moment of the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, my soul is overwhelmed. This is a personal conversation that he's having with dad. He's saying, dad, I know what you're asking me to do. I know what's ahead of me. My soul is overwhelmed, even to the point of his sweat having blood mixed with it. The, The amount of stress in that moment. Then he was arrested. Betrayed by someone that he had done life with for three and a half years. Someone who who should know him and should know his mission and his purpose better than anyone else. His closest of close friends betrayed him with a kiss. Because of that, he was unfairly tried and sentenced to death. And in the midst of that trial, the unfair trial, the religious leaders stripped him, beat him. Thorns that were an inch and a half to two inches pushed into the skull and pushed in and moved around so he would feel it. He was spit on. He was hit. He was whipped. His beard was pulled out. He was beaten to within an inch of his death to the point of being unrecognizable. And then he had the privilege of having a bar put on him, a 
a wooden bar that weighed easily over 100 plus pounds, carried it almost half a mile. When he was put on the cross and they nailed the two crosses together, they used nails that were six to eight inches long, put into his wrists and into his feet. And he was displayed before everyone to see. Unrecognizable, naked, beaten, all by a friend, betrayed by a kiss. And on the cross, he's dehydrated, he's dislocated, he's suffocating, a separation of his shoulder blades, and, and all because of a fabrication that every time that he reaches up for a breath, that he pushes up off of his feet and he pulls up, his hands and his wrists are ripping and his shoulders are ripping. And every time he would come up just to catch a breath because he's suffocating, and then he lets go in that moment, just a jerk every single time. And in the midst of that, he puts out his hands and he's thinking and he's saying to his father that our children are worth this. For God so loved the world that he gave his most precious gift. Father, it is worth it. But even then, the most dreaded part was not even the physical stuff. It was that moment when all of our sins are put on him. And in that moment that the Holy Father, the holiness of God, had to change, fix his eyes and move away. In that moment, there was separation. That Jesus, just a few minutes before in the Garden of Gethsemane, had said, Father, please, if there's any other way. And now on the cross, the only time in his ministry in life that we know that he said, not my father, but he said, my God, my God. And again, a prophecy. Because of the separation in that moment, he pulls up, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sabbatic. He knew your innermost self. The self that you want no one else to know. The darkness, the stench, the smell, the perfect manger scene that you put to other people that inside you have this stench inside that you don't want anyone else to know. He knows it. He sees it. And he pulls up and he says, you are worth it. In that moment when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of the inner mess that you want no one else to know is on him. So why follow Jesus? Because he counted the cost. And he saw us for who we were and who we are. And he said, you are worth it. Why follow that Jesus? Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and he had deceived had not deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. Again, 700 years before Isaiah prophesied the fact that Joseph of Arimathea would buy Jesus' tomb. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. Why follow Jesus? 
is a suffering servant, the perfect Lamb of God. And that when he was on the cross and he pulled up for that last breath and he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of our sins were on him and he knows them, the details of them, and he received them and said, You are worth it. The greatest gift that's ever been given. Jesus is our Passover lamb. He's our moves us from death to life. In the Old Testament, the Passover lamb was a, a one-year-old lamb that was perfect, unblemished, and the family would kill it, would slaughter it. They would eat the meat, but then they would put the blood on the doorposts. And it was for remembrance of the act that provided life for the people of Israel as they moved from Egypt out and movement from slavery to life. And the blood on the door, whenever Passover came over your house, you were saved. That remembrance of the Passover lamb and that experience foreshadowed the cross. Jesus is the perfect Passover lamb, without blemish, with innocence. And in that moment that he gave his life, his blood was put on the mercy seat, and you and I are declared righteous forever in that moment that we say yes to the gift that he gives. Why did Jesus get unusual gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Because they were prophetic. To show us who he was and the roles that he has in our life. He's a great high priest. He's a king of kings. He's the suffering servant. He's the lamb of God. He is the greatest gift we can ever receive. In Luke chapter 9 verses 22 and 23 it says, The Son of Man must suffer many terrible things. He will be rejected by the elders and leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. He will be killed, but on the third day he will be raised from the dead. Then he said to the crowd, If any one of you wants to be my follower, you, will give up, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Why follow Jesus? The suffering servant, the Lamb of God, has given everything. has given the, the greatest gift, and we proclaim that we're followers of Jesus. But so many days, so many times, we pursue our own way, pursue our own path. So many times we count the cost, and it's too inconvenient. It costs too much. It's not the right. I don't know if I really like this person. Jesus says, love does. For God so loved the world that was in opposition to him, that he still saw that the world was in opposition to him, that he counted the cost, and he still gave his son, Jesus, for the thing that should mark us as his children, he as our father, is that as we understand what love does, means that we live and love differently. That we live in a culture where if we proclaim to be followers of Jesus, we should look and act and think and spend and do life radically different enough that people see something different about us because we're following Jesus. Jesus is countercultural. And the ways that we follow when we take up our cross and understand the paths that Jesus has for us, people will make fun of us. People will mock you. People will question you. People will un ask questions of why don't you do this? You have this amount of money. Why do you drive a Toyota? I mean, all the different things that you possibly could do. When you follow Jesus, you will be countercultural. The question is, why do you follow Jesus? 
Do you understand the greatest gift that has ever been given? Has been given in the person of Jesus Christ. So many times we think of this night, neat, manger scene. But in reality, stinky and messy and brutal. A little babe wrapped in swaddling clothes gave his last breath and said, My God, my God, why? He said, Because of you. I know you and I know you. The you that you want no one else to know. I know you and you are worth it. This Christmas. As we open up gifts, may you be reminded of the greatest gift that's been given in the person of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father God, we admit it's easy to hear and gloss over the Christmas story. We've heard it so many times. Father, I pray for us in these coming days and these coming weeks that we're reminded of the cost of the Christmas story. That it cost you everything. Father, thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you that he's our high priest. Thank you that he's our suffering servant, our Lamb of God, and our great shepherd. Father, thank you that he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen. We just continue our time together. Think think of it this way. Some of you have kids and grandkids, and you've questioned, "Ah, is it worth purchasing X for my kids or grandkids? It's a little out of the budget. You look at them, you think, oh, they're cute. They smell good most of the time. Sometimes they like me. And you pull out a credit card, and you go over budget. Why? Because you counted the cost, and you said, you know what, I love them. And yes, it's a little bit more than I want to spend, but they're worth it. So when you do that this Christmas, if you haven't already, be reminded that God the Father took out his credit card and overspent on you. He maxed out his cards for you. And he knows you. And you don't deserve it. But he did it anyway.